Amen, friends. All right, let's do this. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Hebrews. This is where we've been kind of all summer long and where we're going to be uh, really for the rest of the summer. Hebrews 9 is where we are this morning. Hebrews 9. Um, and if you did not bring a Bible, that's okay. There's a blue one underneath, underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can pull that out. Hebrews 9 is on page 1107. 1107 in, in the blue Bibles. Uh, Here's what's been going on. I'm going to kind of reset our context. I know this has been talked about a lot. Uh, We've kind of reset the context a number of times uh, throughout the journey here. But just real quick, quick, I want to remind you that the the context of Hebrews, right? This is a a preacher who is preaching to to a Jewish Christian audience in Rome. Right? A preacher who's preaching to a Jewish Christian audience in Rome, um, and they are enduring um, some pretty intense persecution. No one has been murdered yet, martyred for their faith, uh, but the persecution is ramping up. There's imprisonment happening. Uh, there's violence happening. There are uh, kind of, there's, there's a lot of consequences um, publicly for this faith. And so they're beginning to think in their minds, and some of them are already doing this, thinking, things were not so bad when I was just a Jew, right? All of this trouble is, becoming, is, is coming out of this newfound faith as a Jewish Christian. So what if I just went back to the synagogue? What if I went back to my Jewish roots? What if I just went back to the way things used to be? And the preacher is, is crying out. He says, no, 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 you cannot go back. Because what you have now, what you have in Jesus, is so much better than what you had there. And in fact, the past few weeks, we've been talking about kind of, not only is what you have in Jesus better than what you have back there, but Jesus, in all that he's done, Jesus has diminished what you had back there. Jesus has reduced what you had back there. Jesus is making less of what you had back there. Right? The past few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus as their high priest. Right? Now remember, these are Jewish people. This is a sacred thing to them, the high priest. This is a big deal. And what we've seen, Austin and Benjamin have kind of taken us through over the past, the past few weeks in this kind of section that we're sitting in, in the book of Hebrews, this kind of this argument. So it's a big argument that he's making right here in the middle of the book. This big argument is that Jesus, the first thing that he says, is Jesus is a perfect and eternal high priest. Austin took us through that a few weeks ago. He's a perfect and eternal high priest. He's not this temporary high priest like in the days of old. No, 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 no. He's, he's an eternal high priest. And he's a perfect high priest. He doesn't, he's, he's, not, he's not a sinful high priest. He's perfect in every way. And then last week, not only is he a perfect and eternal high priest, but he's a, he's a high priest of a, of a greater covenant. Yes, you used to have that covenant back there, but what you have in Christ, the covenant you have in Christ is so much better. It's so much better. And, and not only that, not only that, here's where we're going this morning. The place of worship, the holy place that you had back there, this place where God met with his people, it is now diminished because of the one that we have in Christ. It's so much better. Jesus, as our great high priest, this is where we're going this morning. Jesus, as our great high priest, has taken a temporary earthly place of holiness and perfected it by replacing it with an eternal place of holiness and therefore offers an eternal redemption that is now available to all who will be made holy, right? So Jesus, as this new, perfect and eternal high priest of a, of a better and more perfect covenant, has taken this old, earthly, holy place, and, and he has perfected it by replacing it with a new and eternal holy place. 
that we can enter into with him if we will be made holy. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in Hebrews 9. And so I'm going to read the first 14, I think 14 verses for us, um, and then then we'll unpack it together. Here we go, Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, and here it is, an earthly place of holiness. This is going to be the author's subject. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense in the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, this tent, this this holy place, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, all of this, everything that all the authors talk about, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of the Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For with the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. All right, this is the word of the Lord. All right, okay. First of all, right, for, for so many of us in the, in the room, I, everything that I just read, okay, is just like, wait, what the heck are you talking about? There's like so many things in there that are just crazy, right? It's just, there's blood of bulls and goats and calves and heifers and what, why are we, what does this have to do with anything? How, how, how does this apply to my life in any way, shape, or form? We've talked about this a lot 
uh, through this series, right? Josh Gardner, our, our, our minister to students, um, said this kind of at the beginning of this whole series. We were sitting around talking about this. He said, man, if, if the book of Hebrews was a Wikipedia page, the whole thing would be blue, right? Just hyperlink after hyperlink after hyperlink, kind of linking you to all of these other things. And that's what, exactly what's happening here, right? The, the author, once again, for the millionth time, is, is saying, that think back. Think back to this. Like, let, let, me, let me draw your mind back to something um, that Jesus has perfected, that Jesus has made better. Right now, the original audience, right, this, this, this Hebraic uh, Christian Roman audience would have instantly been like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. they'd just been tracking the whole way through. But you and me were like, wait, well, hang on. Hey, I'm, I'm so lost. If you didn't grow up in the church, if you didn't grow up going to church, like, this is even more confusing, right? Uh, what is he talking about, this earthly Holy place. What is that? What is it? And, and he doesn't give a lot of explanation. And someday we'll go deeper into this. We'll walk through Exodus together as a church. We can get way into it. But this morning, I just want to give us kind of a high-level overview of what the author is talking about. Right? So, so what he's talking about is the tabernacle of Moses. He's taking their mind back to ancient Israel. Right? Ancient Israel. They've come out of Egypt. God has given them this new covenant. Right? And, and, he's, and he's called them to be his people. He's drawn them in. Right? He says, I want you to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And in order, order to do that, right, he's going to be with them. With them. And so there's this place of holiness that is created for God to be with his people. It's this sacred and holy place. And it's a tent. It's a tent, right? This is a, this is a nomadic people, this, this, this tribe of Israel, this, this massive group of people. Wherever they would go, right, they, they would set up their tents, their encampments, and all of their tribes around this central location, that central location being what is being described here in Hebrews chapter 9, this holy place. I have a picture of it. I'll throw up here on the screen for you. Uh, this is kind of a reenactment, but it's very quite accurate, right? So you have this external courtyard, right, uh, of this holy place. Now, this would have been surrounded by a, like, a massive encampment of thousands, tens of thousands of people all around, encamped around this, this place. But in that outer courtyard, you have this, this huge place where, you, where they would do these massive burnt offerings, right? The, the blood of bulls and goats and heifers, right? He talks about it in here. The, that burnt offering would be burnt there. Right? And this, the smoke would go up to God. And now in that, in that courtyard, right, the, uh, the priests would go in there all the time. There were many priests. Right? We talked about this uh, at length. I'm not going to go back into it. There were many priests. And they would go in there all the time, all day. There's priests in there doing, doing these, these rituals and ceremonies all day, every day. The priests are in there. And then you go inside. You can go to that next slide. Inside, there's these two rooms. Right? There's a big kind of first room. And the author kind of refers to this. He says, man, inside that first room, the priests would go in regularly all the time. Again, all these, all these rituals and all these practices, they would go in there on a regular basis to light the candles on the lampstand and, and all, all the things they do in that front room. Again, we're not going to get all into it this morning. But that, ba- that, that front room is called the holy place. But the back room, the back room, that smaller back room, that's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And inside that room, the author the, the preacher here in Hebrews says, says that the inside the room is the Ark of the Covenant, right? And that's what we see there in the picture, right? Um, and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, you have these two cherubim, these two kind of angelic creatures. And in the middle of that is, is the mercy seat, right? This is the place. This is the place where, where, where God would descend and sit and engage 
with his people. Inside the ark, right? Inside the ark is the, is the urn that holds the manna, right? Reminding the people that God provides. The staff of Aaron that budded in the wilderness. Um, and, and then the tablets, right? The tablets containing the law, the, the covenant that God made with Moses are placed inside of this ark. Now in that back room, in that back room, the priest did not go in there. You couldn't, you couldn't just waltz in there, okay? That place is the most holy place. And only one man goes in there. It's the high priest. And he, but once a year, one day a year, one day a year, one man was allowed into that room. And on that day, God would descend, this pillar of smoke descends upon, upon the, the tabernacle, and God would meet with the high priest. And on that day, right, this day is a day of fear and, and trepidation where the whole, the whole nation of Israel gather around this, this tent, this holy place, right? And, and it was a day of judgment. One day a year, every year, God would come to judge his people. It's known as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. It is the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. In fact, in 1965, um, 1965 World Series, right? The greatest pitcher of the day was a guy named Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax was, uh, was, was in the lineup. He, they said, okay, it's game one, 1965 World Series. You're, you're up, Sandy. You are gonna, you're the best pitcher we got. You're starting us off. Game one of the World Series. And Sandy Koufax said, no, I'm not. I, I can't pitch in game one of the World Series. Like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, but you see, Sandy Koufax was Jewish. And game one of the World Series, 1965, fell on Yom Kippur. And Sandy Koufax said, there's no way I'm pitching on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is this day of, of, of judgment, right? We call it a day of atonement, but really it's a day of fear. In, in, in that holy place, when the high priest would go in, they, they would tie bells. They would put bells on his, on his, on his gown. They tie, there's, the legend tells us that, that they would tie a rope around his waist, because, because there's a chance, there's a chance that there's some unknown sin, there's something that he has not atoned for, that, they, that he hasn't done enough. And if he walks into the most holy place and with, without doing enough, that he, he will die in that place. Because you cannot stand before a holy God in a holy place if you yourself are not holy. And so if the bells stop ringing, his friends can't go in and get him. You've got to drag him out by a rope around his waist. The whole nation comes wondering, will God allow me to live for another year? Have I done enough? To this day, the Day of Atonement is marked by kind of intense religious rituals, right? It, it, leading up to the Day of Atonement, um, the, the, the attendance in the synagogue and that kind of that month leading up to the Day of Atonement swells. In fact, on the Day of Atonement, right, on Yom Kippur, right, most Jewish synagogues have to find a bigger place to meet. Right? It's kind of this day where like everybody's trying to get right with God. Everybody's serving more, volunteering more, giving more money. Like how to, like listen, I've gotta, I've gotta get get right with God. I've gotta do all the right things because the day of atonement's coming. It's coming. All of the religious regulations are heightened and even stricter. No sex leading up to the day of atonement. No, no makeup, no perfume, no cosmetics leading up to the day of atonement. Nothing that would distract me that it might distract me from focusing on what is most important. No bathing, right? No bathing. I, I, I just, I just want to focus on the main thing. I need to focus on getting right 
with God. Higher attendance, higher giving, higher volunteering. Every year they would stand before the judgment seat of God, fearing that they may not be good enough to pass through to the next year of their life. There's a desperation to be accepted by God. And what the author gets at in all of this, he says the Spirit, by this, by all of this, the Spirit of God is reminding us. The tent reminds us that the way into God is not open to us. All of this reminds us that God is holy, and you and I, I, I am not holy. I'm not holy. All of this reminds us that, that, that to, to draw near to God is closed off for you. It's closed off for me. He is holy, and I'm not holy. It reminds us that we need holiness. We need holiness, right? The thing that we need, right, in order to draw near to God, what is the thing that we need? What, is, what do we need in order to draw near to God? So many of you in the room might give out a good Sunday school answer and say, well, we need Jesus. That's actually not true. We need holiness. We need holiness. If you're going to draw near to a holy God, you need holiness. And every year on Yom Kippur, the Jewish people were reminded, were reminded that that's not who they are. They cannot draw near. Um, also, kind of in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s, um, there was this question that became really popular amongst evangelists, right? Evangelists would stop people on the street and they would ask them this question. You've probably been asked this question before, right? If you were to die tonight, if you were to die tonight, uh, and, and you were to go before God, you were to, to go to heaven, you go before God, and God says, well, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What would you say? It's really this kind of Yom Kippur question, right? It's, it's, this, it's this kind of moment of judgment. What would you say? What do you have to offer? What's going to get you in? And people kind of come up with all kinds of, of answers for this question. And the truth is that, that over the years, right, churches and religions have kind of given us kind of two main reasons, two, two main reasons to not have fear instilled into us when that question is asked of us. There's two main reasons. Number one, some religions and some churches, and even, even well-intentioned, even well-intentioned preachers and churches, kind of trying to convince us that we can actually be good enough. You can actually be good enough. If you just do the right things, if you, if you live the right way, if you follow these, this set of rules, right, if you give just enough money, right, you, you can be marked as worthy. If you give just enough money, you don't have to give all your money, just, just the right amount of money. And if you serve the right amount of time, you, you, you serve and you give and you live rightly, right, then, then, then you're worthy. You're worthy to enter into the presence of God. And friends, I mean, I'm here to, I'm just begging you this morning. If, if you have been taught that, if you've bought into that idea that because I give a certain amount, because I serve a certain amount, because I follow a list of rules to the best of my ability, maybe not perfectly, but pr pretty dang good, right, that I am worthy to, to enter into the Holy of Holies, I am begging you this morning to stop believing that lie because it is not true. In ancient Israel, if the Jews, if you said, man, no, no, I think I'm good enough to enter into that, they would have laughed at you. They said, oh, okay, go, go right ahead. And you'd have gotten smoked, just smited instantly. From the moment you stepped into even the, even the outer courtyard with that 
audacity, that arrogance to believe that in some way, shape, or form that you are worthy and holy enough to enter because of the things that you've done. About 20% of the United States, people in the United States would say, I'm holy. I'm holy. And they're all missing it. They've all missed it. And if you've bought into that and you've believed that, I am begging you this morning to reject that idea. To reject that idea. The second thing that people would say, the the reason why I should be allowed in heaven is is this, right? And this might be true for many of you. Say, because I, I, because I believe in Jesus. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that's the wrong answer as well. It's not it. It's not it. You see, good people, well-intentioned pastors have, have convinced us that we, I, am the center of God's story. That I am the center of the gospel. In fact, that I, I'm the center of the cross. The cross exists to kind of to show me how much God loves me. That's, that's, that's not true. The cross exists to show us how much God values and loves his holiness that you and I, that we've, we've walked all over that we've broken and treaded upon. We've, we've treaded upon his righteousness and his holiness. And he loves it so much that he would give his only son to restore his righteousness and holiness to a right place. And Jesus values the holiness and the righteousness of God enough to say, I'll go. I'll go to the cross and I will bleed the ground red to redeem, to, to rescue, to, to restore the holy of holies. Jesus goes to the cross to make the holy of holies holy again. This broken earthly place that could not perfect the conscience, that could not save, that could not rescue, that could not redeem. Jesus says, man, I'll go to the cross to make the holy of holies holy again. Do not place yourself at the center of the story. Don't believe that you can obtain it. And don't believe that you are at the center of it. We are the people who have broken it. We are the people who have broken and trampled on the holiness of God through our sin. R.C. Sproul, in his work, The Holiness of God, puts it this way, talking about sin. He says, sin, it'll be put on the screen, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude towards the one to whom we owe everything. The one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute peccadillo? I had to look that up. It means like tiny little offense, in case you're dumb like me. Um, What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We are saying No to the righteousness of God, to the holiness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you've commanded me to do. You see, sin says that you, that God is not holy you see, ho- holiness, true holiness, right? Holiness is this, is this complete 
completely different, completely set apart in every way, right? God is, God is completely set apart in his, in his grace. His grace is unlike any other grace. He's completely set apart in his love. His love is like unlike any other love. He's completely set apart in his moral perfection. Immorally, he is unlike any, anything else. He is completely set apart in every single way. He's completely set apart in his power. There's no one as powerful as him. He's completely set apart in his beauty. There's no one as beautiful as him. He's completely set apart in every single way. And when we sin, we say, no, 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 you're not that good. I am actually better. I know better. You're not set apart in your infinite knowledge. My, I know better than you. You're not, you're not set apart. You're not holy in, in your perfect morality. I, I, I know what's right and what's wrong, and I'm going to do what's better. We're saying no to the righteousness, to the holiness of God. Every single time we sin, even the smallest, littlest thing, we are trampling underfoot the holiness of God. And Jesus goes to the cross, bleeds the ground red to declare, no, 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 no. He is holy. Jesus is the holiness of God manifested. You see, if you answer the question, if you were to die tonight and you were to go to heaven and God, which, is, which isn't a real question, it's not really going to, it's not how it works, but it doesn't matter. You go before God and God asks you, which he wouldn't, why should I let you in? If you answer that in the first person, because I, I did this, I, I, I give, I, I, I serve, because I, I'm, I'm worthy, I've, I've been counted worthy. People have told me I'm worthy because, because I believe in Jesus, because I, I went to seminary, because I, I, I taught a small group, I, I go to church. If you answer in the first person, you've already got it wrong. Your answer must be in the third person, and only the third person, because he is holy. Because he's good enough. Because he's mighty enough. Because he is worthy. Because he's holy in his grace towards me. Because he's holy in his mercy towards me. Because he's holy in his love towards me. Because he's holy. Because he. Our answer must be in the third person. Jesus is holy. This brings us to verse 11 of our text. And this is what the author is getting at. It says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of bulls, Goat, or blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption, right? He, he, th thus securing eternal redemption, right? So he, the Holy One, creates, enters into the new holy of holies, and as a result of his holiness, and as a result of his restoring what is right and the holy before God, thus, as a result of that, thus he secured for us an eternal Redemption. It's an outworking of his holy work. So eternal redemption is a byproduct of Jesus restoring the holy of holies by his blood. Jesus can restore the holiness, the holies of God by his blood because he is the holiness of God on display. Only Jesus says who gets in. And who doesn't get in. And it's always, always, always by his blood, 
not by our merit. You will never get in by the things you do. You can only get in by his blood. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. You can now be saved by good works through religion or knowledge or success or any other merit, but only by what Christ has achieved. There is no rock like our God. There is no other name under heaven. There is none holy like him. Jesus is the only way. Because he's the holy one. This past week, I was, was gone. I, I missed you guys last Sunday. I was, I was, I was climbing a mountain. I, got, I had the opportunity with some friends to climb Mount Whitney, uh, which is in the high Sierras, the Sierra Nevadas in California. It's the highest point in the, in the lower 48, which isn't that high when you get outside of uh, our little world here in the United States of America. Um, but it's the higher, highest point in the lower 48. It's 14,510-ish feet high. And, and there's this point uh, as we're climbing. So, so we, we, we left our camp at 3 in the morning, right? Because you, right after you leave camp, there's this thing called the 99 switchbacks, which is literally 99 switchbacks. It's just hell for 99 times over and over again. But when you get out, you have to leave. So we leave at 3 in the morning, so we don't, we're not doing this in the heat of the day, okay? But what that means is when we get up to the top, we get to see the sunrise through what's called the windows, as you're going to the summit, you see these, you walk through these massive kind of windows. It opens up, and, and you can see in, the, in these little, see all those little spikes sticking up, right? Those are the windows. When you, when you come through one, you can look out, and you can see uh, just forever, forever, death valleys over on the other side. And we got to see, like, the ball rising. And in, in this moment, it was, I was overwhelmed by the beauty of what I was seeing that day. And then I begin to think about this, this, this Sunday in this text, and realizing that even in, in the beauty of this unbelievable splendor, this unbelievable scene, the creator of it all, Jesus, is infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more holy, infinitely more wonderful. He's set apart holy in his beauty. He's set apart holy in his splendor. He's set apart. He's infinitely more in every way better than anything that we're ever going to find, anything that we're ever going to tap into. And he's, he's offered to us to come join him, to step into the Holy of Holies, to be set apart, to be set apart, to be unlike anything else, to be truly unique in him. In Isaiah 6, 1, famously, Isaiah has this, this vision, this, this overwhelming picture of Jesus. And here's, here's how it reads. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw Jesus. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood two seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Through the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. It's, it's this moment where, where Isaiah actually lays eyes on the holiness of Christ. He sees him. And these massive angelic creatures, when they speak, the whole foundation of heaven shakes. They're massive. And even in that, they cover their face because they are not worthy to look upon the, the holiness and the splendor of our king. He is holy. He's worthy to enter into the holiest of holy places. And only he, only he can make you worthy of that. So the author is trying to get us to see that Jesus as our high priest has taken a temporary earthly place of holiness and perfected it by replacing it with an eternal place of holiness. He is the Lord of hosts. He's the king. So the last question is this. Why would you ever go back? Why, why, would, you, why would you ever leave? This is the question that he's posing to his audience. This is what he's saying. Man, why would you ever go back? This is, this is who he is, and this is what he's done for you. Why would you ever go back? In those last verses, he says this. He says, 4, verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled pers persons with the ashes of a heifer. This is ridiculous, right? If that sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? How much better do you have it? How much better do you have it? Why would you ever go back? But there's something in there that's easily missed. That we've been purified. Our conscience has been purified from dead works to serve the living God. There is an offer of eternal redemption on the table for those who would come under the rule and reign of Christ the King. Those who would be set apart by him and for him. Those who would be made holy. The, the, those who, as Isaiah says, my, my, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am not worthy. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Nobody around me is worthy. Nobody around me is like this. But Jesus says, man, let me set you apart. Let me set you apart. Let me make you holy. So that you might serve a living God. Let me free you from all those dead works. All of that, all of that. I can, I can earn it. I can do it. That Yom Kippur. Man, if I died at night and God asked me, how, why should I get in? Right, let me free you from that question. Let me free you from those dead works. These, these things that you think you need to do in order to impress me. Let me free you from that to actually serving the living God, the King of Kings. Come, follow me. Come, be with me. Come, be holy. Set apart. That's the invitation. To join him, to be with him, to, to, to go in to the Holy of Holies, to open your life up to Jesus. Not, not, as, not as someone who's just going to save you, as a king who's worthy of your worship, as a king who you give the rest of your days to, as the ones you bow before, as the Holy One who has restored the Holy of Holies. For so many of you, you've been sitting on the outside, afraid to enter in. And Jesus is saying, come on, let, let's, let's go in.
trust in the completed, finished work of Christ. We're going to talk more about that even next week as we dive even deeper into the Day of Atonement. Jesus is in. And he's now saying, you can come into. Let's, let's enter into his rest. And let's enter into a life completely submitted to the Holy One. That your days might be ruined for anything less than to serve him with every breath that you have. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, I pray that you would give us a picture, a greater picture than even I could paint this morning of your holiness. That your holiness would root us in all of the, all of the moments of our life when, when nothing is going our way, that we would know that we can serve a holy God. That, that, the, that the way for, for me, a man of unclean lips, to enter into the Holy of Holies has been, has been made as Christ restored the righteousness and the holiness of God, the way it was meant to be, the way it was intended to be. I can now once again draw near that my friends, the people that I dwell among, the people of unclean lips in this room, we can now enter in. And so let us find our rest in you and let us live out the remainder of our days serving the living God who is holy in every single way. We pray these things in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.